Thank you, Steve. It's uh, a real joy for me to get to be here at the Steadfast Conference this year, and I'm so delighted to be part of a conference, the theme of which is the essential church, and the church is indeed essential. I'm also grateful to get to be part of the lineup, not only with Steve, but also with Carl. And uh, so I just even hearing Dr. Hargrove preach last night was just reminded again of how blessed I am to get to serve alongside such capable men at the Master's Seminary. And I, I told him afterwards, you know, he gave that illustration of calling his kids to dinner. And uh, when he said, hey, get over here, I, I almost got up out of my seat and came. I, I was uh, under the conviction of the moment, so I just am so grateful to, again, get to be part of the team that God has assembled there. And then, Steve, thank you for letting me be part of this year's Steadfast Conference. It's just a joy to celebrate with all of you the most important institution ever established, the institution that Jesus Christ himself has promised to build, and that, of course, is the church. We understand that the church is essential. We've always known that the church is essential. I think that these past two years have only reinforced for us that reality, that the church is essential. And when you close down all of the churches, things happen and they're not good things because the salt and light influence that the church is to be when that is hidden under a basket or when the salt loses its flavor, the result on the surrounding society is that things don't get better, they get worse. Well, this morning, my goal is to talk about our witness as the church, our corporate witness, and also our individual witness to the Lord Jesus Christ as those who are followers of Jesus those who are members of his body, the church. And I do love what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, where he did tell his followers that they are to be the salt of the earth and they are to be the light of the world. And we are to have that kind of preserving influence and that gospel light on the world around us. I appreciated, and I'm sure it was not coincidental, the video that was shown prior to this session because it had so much church history in it. And when you hear those names of the people of God who have demonstrated faithfulness in extraordinary ways, I'm always reminded of Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of faith that looks at those Old Testament saints, and then Hebrews chapter 12, which reminds us that their examples are to serve as a motivation for us to run the race with endurance, and that the reason we recount their stories is not so much to look to them, but to look past them to the one to whom they also looked. Hebrews chapter 12, fixing your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of the faith. And as those who have our eyes set on Christ, we are to point others to Jesus as well, we are to be his 
witnesses, and that's our theme for our time this morning, our witness to Christ, in a message that I've called Gospel Courage. We call ourselves Evangelical Protestants. That's the label that we often identify ourselves with when we look out at the spectrum of labels. Evangelical Protestant. But what does that term mean, or what do those two words mean? Well, the term evangelical goes all the way back to the Reformation. Actually, I guess it goes prior to the Reformation because it's a New Testament word. It's the Greek word euangelion, which is the word gospel in Greek or good news. And it was in the 16th century that Martin Luther took that term and he applied it to the churches of the Reformation. Because in contrast to the Roman Catholic Church, the churches that had rediscovered and recovered the gospel of grace were to be known as the gospel churches, the evangelical churches. It was actually William Tyndale who took that term and brought it over into English, and the term has stuck ever since. So the term evangelical goes all the way back to the Reformation, and that term really identifies what it is that we are for as those who are followers of Jesus Christ. We are for the gospel. The term Protestant similarly finds its roots in the Reformation, and of course that's no surprise. But what may surprise you is that the term Protestant, when it was originally coined, wasn't so much about protesting the Roman Catholic Church, that was part of it, but actually in the year 1529, there was an imperial council in the city of Spire in modern-day Germany, the Diet, that's an imperial council, the Diet of Spire of 1529 actually banned Lutheranism and Lutheran teaching in all of the Holy Roman Empire. And in response to that imperial ban, a group of evangelical princes wrote a letter protesting that ban. It was called their Letter of Protestation. And as a result of that, those who protested the government's attempt to shut down the gospel churches, they became known as Protestants. And I rehearsed that history a little bit because when we call ourselves evangelical Protestant, what we're saying by the term evangelical is that we are for the gospel. And what we are saying by the term Protestant is that we stand against any authority, religious or secular, that might intrude upon the worship of Jesus Christ as he has commanded us to worship him in his word. That Protestant conviction that Christ alone is the head of the church and therefore no other human authority, religious or secular, has the right to tell his people how to worship or what to believe or how to do church That conviction continued throughout the Reformation. It was really a core conviction of the Puritans in England. In England, the Anglican Church more or less replaced a pope with a king when Parliament passed what was called the Act of Supremacy. 
that named King Henry VIII the supreme head of the Church of England. And the Puritans were those who said, no, the church has no head but Jesus Christ. And so when the monarchs of Britain attempted to force churches to follow a certain liturgy in what was called the Book of Common Prayer, a liturgy that included many vestiges of Roman Catholic religion, the Puritans said no. And they were persecuted significantly as a result. And in Scotland, their brothers-in-arms, the Covenanters, were similarly persecuted, all because they believed that Christ alone is the head of the church. And if he's the head of the church, then we must do things in the way that he has commanded. And therefore, if any other authority attempts to disrupt that, we must respectfully align ourselves with Christ against that competing authority. This, of course, has relevance for our own day because we live in a time, as strange as it may seem, we live in a time when governing authorities have put all sorts of restrictions and regulations on churches And as well-intentioned as those regulations and restrictions may be, I think if we ask ourselves the question, if the Bible commands us to assemble together regularly, Hebrews 10.25, then does that mean that we should never meet together because of some sort of government ban on meeting? Or if the Bible commands us to sing corporately in worship together, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, then if the government says, hey, no corporate singing, what are we to do? Do we obey the government? Or if the Bible commands us to fellowship together in ways that require physical proximity, then does that mean that we promote social social isolation and always keep ourselves six feet apart from anyone else simply because that's what the government is telling us to do. I think if we had asked those questions of the reformers or of the Puritans or of the Scottish Covenanters, they would have resoundingly answered those questions by saying, (coughs) that was a great time for a cough. That's not what they would have said. What they would have said is, we must obey God rather than men. And in so doing, we will be a faithful witness to Christ. We see examples of that kind of faithful witness throughout all of Scripture. We could look at Daniel when the decree went out to not pray to any other God but to King Darius, who's not a god, for a month and Daniel just kept on praying. Or John the Baptist, who confronted Herod. Or the Apostle Paul, who was often imprisoned as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we would note their faithfulness in choosing to obey God rather than men. The book of Acts is full of these kinds of examples. And so as we consider the theme of gospel courage, I'm going to look this morning specifically at a text in Acts chapter 5. 
And if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there, Acts chapter 5. Because as evangelical Protestants, we are for the gospel and we are marked by the courage to stand up to that which would oppose the gospel. Gospel, courage, evangelical Protestant. As we come to the book of Acts, of course, you're familiar with the book of Acts because you're familiar with your New Testaments. I love the fact that the Holy Spirit considered church history important enough that he put a book of church history in your Bibles. I tell that to all of my classes at the seminary. Perhaps it's just a way for me to justify the course I'm about to teach. But it is true that the first 30 to 35 years of church history are articulated for us in an inerrant and authoritative way here in the book of Acts. And it's in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, that the church is born when the 120, including the uh, 11 plus Matthias, are there in the upper room and the Holy Spirit comes and they go out then as witnesses. In fact, they were charged to be witnesses, Acts 1.8 of Jesus Christ. And they go out and they preach the gospel in all of those different dialects and languages. And it's an amazing miracle and a crowd is drawn and Peter preaches this incredible gospel sermon and some 3,000 are added to the church that day. And then in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on their way to the temple and they meet a man who's crippled. And the man asks for silver and gold. He's begging for alms and Peter says to him, I don't have any money, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And the man gets up and he walks. And the crowd is astonished, and of course, they come together, and Peter and John preach another amazing gospel sermon, and many more are added to the church that day, and the religious leaders begin to catch wind of this Jesus movement that's taking over the temple complex there in Jerusalem, and the Sanhedrin hauls Peter and John before them, and they strictly instruct them no longer to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, Peter and John give this just incredible response. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I love that. Well, they are warned to stop and then released. And they come back to meet with the other followers of Christ there in Jerusalem. And when they come back, the other disciples pray for them. And I love chapter 4, verse 29, the prayer request, because it's a prayer request for gospel courage. A prayer request to continue to be a witness in spite of the persecution and hostility. You see there in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak, may speak your word with all confidence. Lord, give us the courage, in spite of the religious authorities, 
telling us to stop. Give us the courage to continue to do what you've called us to do and to be witnesses to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of that then brings us in terms of context to our passage in Acts chapter 5. The the first part of Acts chapter 5 has to do with Ananias and Sapphira, and you're, of course, familiar with that story. It's the only place in the New Testament where being slain in the Holy Spirit is actually recorded. Obviously a little different than how it's sometimes practiced today. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira is there to remind all of us that God takes the worship and the holiness of his people seriously. It sets the context for the righteousness, the the reputation, the conduct that is to characterize those who would be witnesses of Jesus Christ. That then brings us to our text in verses 17 to 42 of Acts chapter 5. And as we unpack these verses, we're going to organize our thoughts around two big questions. The first question is, what does gospel courage look like? What does gospel courage look like? And the second question is, how can we cultivate that kind of courage in our own hearts, and in our own lives. If, if we are to be the church of salt and light, the congregation of those who are called out as followers of Jesus Christ, who assemble to be encouraged and then disseminate to go as witnesses into the community, what does gospel courage look like as those who are part of the essential church? As we answer that first question, we're going to do so by noting three characteristics of the apostles' courage because the apostles serve as examples for us in this passage. What does gospel courage look like? Here are three characteristics. In verses 17 to 26, we're going to see that they had the courage to speak. In verses 18 to 39, the courage to stand. And in verses 40 to 42, the courage to suffer. And we'll make our way through each of those points as we work through the text. The courage to speak, the courage to stand, and the courage to suffer. We'll begin at verse 17 of Acts chapter 5. But the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, those who controlled the temple. And they were filled with jealousy because they're noting the popularity of the apostles. The apostles had been doing healing miracles and keeping with their foundational role as those who were messengers of the gospel and God authenticated their message through those miraculous signs. And people were coming from all around to hear them preach and to see them heal. And the religious leaders of Jerusalem were jealous. And so verse 18, they laid hands on the apostles. That's not some sort of commissioning service. That's an arrest. They laid hands on the apostles and they put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go, go. 
stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered the temple around daybreak and they began to teach. As we already saw in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John had been preaching in the temple. They'd been preaching in the name of Jesus, and they had already been brought before the religious leaders, and they had been instructed to stop, to cease and desist in their witness to the name of Jesus. But here in chapter 5, we see that they had ignored that warning, and they had continued to proclaim the name of Christ boldly to anyone who would hear so that the name of Jesus reverberated throughout the temple complex. And as a result, they are arrested and they are put in prison. Now, as God will do again in Acts chapter 12, he sends an angel and the angel miraculously, supernaturally, breaks the apostles out of prison. But you'll notice that this is no ordinary prison break. You might expect someone who's just been released from prison to be told to go into hiding, to go into some sort of first century witness protection program, but that's not at all the instruction that the angel gives to the apostles. The counterintuitive instruction is this. Having been released from jail for preaching about Jesus in the temple, now go and preach about Jesus in the temple. Go back and do the very thing that got you locked up in the first place. Go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. I love that description of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ that you can be forgiven and declared righteous because of what he did on your behalf. And you might have life everlasting, both in substance and in duration, the whole message of this life. And what do the apostles do? They go back to the very place where they had been arrested and they keep preaching the very message that got them imprisoned. Now, obviously, there are some extraordinary elements to this particular prison break. It's not every day that you have an angel letting you out of prison. But I don't want the supernatural elements to eclipse the reality of the apostles' courage in this particular moment. They had been warned They had been arrested, they had been incarcerated, and now they're being instructed to go back and do the very thing that resulted in that kind of persecution. And instead of backing down or running away, they simply obey and they go back to proclaim the truth about Jesus. It's this kind of courage that Christ calls all of his followers to exhibit. And in that sense, again, the apostles serve as a model and an example for us. But meanwhile, back at the jail, just so funny almost as Luke writes this, I I imagine him smiling at certain points in this because 
back at the prison, it's chaos. Look at verse 21. Now, when the high priest and his associates, when they came, they called the council together, even all the Senate of the sons of Israel. So now it's not just Sadducees, it's also Pharisees. This is the entire Sanhedrin. And he sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back saying, I mean, just imagine how bizarre this must sound. We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them up, there was no one inside. They were gone. And when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. And then maybe the strangest irony in the story, but someone came and reported to them, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Hey, those guys who escaped, yeah, they... They didn't get very far. They're right back where they were doing what they were doing yesterday when you arrested them. And then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Verse 24 highlights the perplexity of both the religious leaders and the officers. I mean, how amazed they must have been that their prisoners were back in the temple, the audacity of these followers of Jesus. What kind of courage is this? And then notice how the courage of the apostles in verse 26 is contrasted with the fear of the arresting officers. Normally, it's the fugitive who is afraid. In this story, it is the Police who are afraid. The guards are the ones who are afraid. When told to stop preaching, the apostles refused to comply. They responded instead with gospel courage. And really, they were simply being obedient to the instruction that they had been given by God through an angel. And by being obedient, they demonstrated gospel courage. And that brings us to a second characteristic of gospel courage. In verses 17 to 26, it's the courage to speak. In verses 27 to 39, it's the courage to stand. The courage to stand firm, unwavering, immovable. The courage to stand up against that which seeks to shut you down. Look at verse 27. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in the name of Jesus. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I want to stop there in the story for just a second because I want you to consider what's happening in this moment. Peter and John, along with the other apostles, so this includes Matthias, so there's 12 of them there, have been brought now before the full council, the full Sanhedrin. It was just months earlier that Jesus had appeared before this same council. And of course, you remember on the night of his arrest what happened to the 12 
or the 11 at that point because Judas was gone, but the apostles had scattered in fear. Peter and John had actually followed from a distance all the way to the high priest's house. And it was there when Jesus was appearing before this same council that Peter denied his Lord three times. And here we are just months later, Peter is now standing before that same council. Will he deny his Lord this time? Will the other apostles attempt to flee? The religious leaders look at Peter and essentially say, hey, we told you to stop preaching about Jesus. It was very clear. We were very clear. And not only did you disregard it, but you kept doing it, and we had you arrested and imprisoned, and you broke out, and you're still doing it. Will Peter deny? Will he defect? Not this time. Look at verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And we're going to come back and look at these verses in a little bit more detail at the end of our message this morning. But at this point, I just want to point out how Peter and his fellow apostles serve as an example of courage in that moment. They don't back down. They don't shrink away. They're respectful, but they are unmoved in their position. Their convictions are fixed. Where does this courage come from? comes from the recognition that they must obey God rather than men, that the authority of God and his word transcends any other authority. And so when those authorities come into conflict with one another, the choice is very simple. The consequences may be severe, but the choice is not difficult. The choice is easy. When God and government collide, we must obey God rather than men. In our own day, even as we think of our witness to Christ in the public square, it is this conviction that we are submitting ourselves to the authority of God himself through his word that gives us the boldness to stand up and speak that which needs to be said. What is it that gives us the courage to say things like the word of God is inerrant and authoritative and sufficient or things like the earth was created in six literal days or things like gender is determined by God at birth and marriage is between a man and a woman. 
things that you would think should not be controversial, but in our day have proven to become controversial. And for those of us who would have the audacity to say such things, what gives us the courage to take such a stand? Is it not that our authority comes from the word of God and we must obey him even when it's not popular to do so? Well, the result of Peter's bold stand is that the Sanhedrin, the religious council, intends to put the apostles to death. Verse 33, but when they, the religious leaders, heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill the apostles. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up at the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you purpose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Now, this is a, an interesting kind of parentheses almost in the narrative. Why does Luke include this in his account of Peter and the rest of the apostles in their bold stand before the Sanhedrin? I think there's three reasons and maybe more, but first and most obviously, it explains why the apostles were not killed that day. It will be two chapters later that Stephen will be the first martyr of the Christian church. The apostles were spared that day because of the advice, as maybe pragmatic as it might sound, of Gamaliel, one of these respected religious leaders. But secondly, I think the reason Luke includes this is because he's making a theological point. Gamaliel's point is, if this movement is only of men, it will fail, like the failed efforts of Thutis and Judas, these false messiahs. But if this movement is of God, it will persist and it will prevail. And even what Steve so wonderfully explained to us yesterday from Matthew 16, where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The fruition of that promise fulfilled over 2,000 years of church history is proof that this movement is of God and not of men. Gamaliel is a witness, although unwittingly, but he's a witness to that reality. And then thirdly, I think Gamaliel's words demonstrate the obstinance of the religious leaders who so often were found fighting against God. The most notable example of those is a man named Saul of Tarsus, who happens to be a student of Gamaliel. And yet he doesn't even heed his own mentor's advice because he will spend the next several chapters of the book of Acts trying to root out and kill the followers of Jesus. And in Acts 9, the Lord himself will dramatically and graciously intervene in Saul's life and he will essentially ask him, why are you fighting against God? 
And of course, then Saul will become the great missionary of the church. But the big picture point that I want you to walk away from this entire section of verses with is that the apostles on that occasion demonstrated the courage to stand, and they did not back down. And so we've seen the courage to speak, even when it was unpopular to speak, and we've seen the courage to stand even when hostile civil authorities attempted to intimidate them. That brings us thirdly in verses 40 to 42 to the courage to suffer, the courage to suffer. What does gospel courage look like? It looks like speaking even when it's unpopular to speak and standing even when it's difficult to stand and being willing to suffer when the consequences for that stand result in persecution and suffering. Look at the last three verses of Acts 5. The council took Gamaliel's advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. Verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Instead of killing the apostles, they punished them. This flogging would have been 39 lashes with a whip in keeping with Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 to 3. It was severely painful, but it was not lethal, and it was intended to send a very strong message. Cease and desist, or next time you're going to get worse. How do the apostles respond? Well, they respond on two fronts. First, they rejoice. They rejoice in their suffering because they recognize the privilege that it is to suffer on behalf of the one who suffered for them so that through him they might have eternal life. They counted it a joy to experience shame for the name of Christ. To suffer for his sake is an act of worship and service and faithfulness to him. The badge of honor. And then look at verse 42. I love this. And every day, they didn't even take time off. And every day, in the temple, that's where they had been arrested in the first place, And from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They didn't stop, not even for a moment. They refused to be intimidated by the threats of the religious leaders. They did not, they did not stop even for a day. And so they suffered well on two counts. First, because they found joy in the suffering, because it is a joy and a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. And second, they suffered well because they did not allow the suffering to intimidate them. They did not allow the consequence to stop them from their obedience to God. 
So gladly they suffered and boldly they obeyed. So we've seen then what gospel courage looks like from the example of the apostles who provide for us through the words of Luke, this vivid illustration of gospel courage from just the first couple of years of church history. It's the courage to speak and the courage to stand and the courage to suffer well for the sake of Christ. That brings us to our second big question. And we'll just go through this quickly, but we've seen what gospel courage looks like. Now the question is, how can we cultivate that kind of courage in our own hearts and lives as followers of Jesus? How do we cultivate this kind of courage as those who want to be bold witnesses for Christ? I think the answer is back in verses 29 to 32, in the very words of Peter. And Peter, in these verses, he identifies three ingredients for this kind of courage. Three ingredients for this kind of courage. Verse 29 Peter recognized that he had a God-given mandate. He said, we must obey God rather than men. He recognized that he had a God-given mandate. And his courage was really nothing more than just his willingness to be obedient no matter the cost. God has instructed him to do this. And therefore, he must do this. This is not an option. This is not a choice. This is a directive and a mandate and a command. And because it comes from God, the highest authority, there is no other authority that can interfere with it. And then verse 30, verses 30 and 31, you see the second ingredient there, a Christ-centered a Christ-centered message, a Christ-centered message. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The apostles are on message when it comes to the content of their gospel, you'll notice that all of the key ingredients of the gospel are encompassed here. You have the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. You have the ascension and exaltation of Christ. You have his glory as the prince of heaven and his saving work as the exclusive savior. You even have repentance and forgiveness and sin all here in this very short, concise statement. And so the apostles not only have a God-given mandate, they also have a Christ-centered message, and their message is the gospel, the good news of salvation and forgiveness through the one who died and rose again and is now exalted to the right hand of the Father. And then verse 32, the third ingredient a spirit-empowered mission. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those 
who obey him. You'll remember all the way back in Acts 1.8 that Jesus said that they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And of course, both in Acts 1 and also in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, Jesus had promised that the Spirit would be the one who would go with them. The apostles have a Spirit-empowered mission, one that they received from Christ himself to go and be witnesses. And as they witness to this gospel, it is the Spirit who takes that truth and uses it to transform hearts that were dead, he makes alive, and eyes that were blind, he gives sight. The word for witness in Greek is the word martus, which gives us the English word martyr. Martyr is one who is a witness to Jesus Christ even unto death. And eventually, these apostles, almost all of them, will die as martyrs. But before they were martyred, they were faithful witnesses in life. So what was the key to Peter's courage, to the other men who were there that day? What were the ingredients that fueled their courage? They had a a God-given mandate. They had a Christ-centered message. They had a Spirit-empowered mission. And they recognized even what Paul will say in his rhetorical question in Romans 8, that if God is for us, who can be against us? And we might look at that and we might say, okay, that's great for the apostles. How does that relate to us? Well, my encouragement to you this morning is to say, those same ingredients are yours as a follower of Christ. Do we not also have a God-given mandate? The Great Commission was not just for the apostles. It is for all followers of Jesus in all of church history to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that he has commanded us. And do we not also have a Christ-centered message, a message that has transformed our lives first so that when we speak of this life-transforming gospel, we are speaking a testimony of our own experience that we who were unworthy have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And do we not also have a spirit-empowered mission? Does not the same Holy Spirit reside within us, illuminating our hearts to the truth and taking his word so that when it is proclaimed, it never returns void. I've said this a few times already, but I love this reality because I think there is a sense in our own hearts where we think courage comes from mustering up some sort of inner fortitude. But I think this account illustrates the reality that that's, that's not really where courage comes from. Courage is about simply being obedient, even when it's not popular to be obedient. What we see with Peter and the other apostles is not the mustering up of some sort of inner fortitude, but simply the willingness to say, when 
governing authority, whether it's secular or religious, says to us as the church, you have to stop doing this or doing that. And when we look to the Word of God and we see clearly in Scripture that we're commanded to do those things, then we respectfully respond like Peter, we must obey God rather than men. I want to close with an illustration that comes back to the theme of gospel courage. Because, again, the reality is, as the church, the essential church, we are to be salt and light in this world. We are to be that preserving and proclaiming influence. And that means that we as individual Christians are to go out and boldly be witnesses for Christ. And sometimes it can feel like we are, like we're on a sinking ship, right? It feels like we're on the decks of the Titanic and the whole thing's going down and we're kind of watching it slowly submerge beneath the waters. The culture, the society around us, the decay, the depravity, it's all in a Romans 1 downward spiral and we're kind of going, what is happening? And the question I think we sometimes find ourselves asking as we observe all that's happening around us is, okay, what can I do? What am I supposed to do? Well, one of my favorite stories from church history actually involves the sinking of the Titanic. It was April 15th, 1912. There was a pastor on the Titanic Um, pastor from Britain. His name was John Harper. He was 39 years old, pastor from Scotland. He was 39 years old. He was actually coming across the Atlantic because he was going to preach in D.L. Moody's church. Uh, Moody had gone home to heaven, but his church had invited Harper to come and preach, and he was a faithful, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching British pastor. He was there on the Titanic, April 1912. He was a widower. His wife had died a number of years earlier, and he was making that transatlantic voyage with his six-year-old daughter and with his sister. When the Titanic hit the iceberg, John Harper took his sister and his daughter and got them safely on a lifeboat And then he turned around from the lifeboats and he spent the rest of his remaining hours on this earth preaching the gospel. His text was Acts 16, 30 and 31. The Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answered, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And John Harper made his way from passenger to passenger, pleading with them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. One point in the story, one man refused to listen to the gospel. Harper ripped off his life jacket, gave it to the man and said, you're going to need this more than I do. As that boat, that ship submerged into the North Atlantic, John Harper wasn't done preaching yet. He would swim as long as he was able before hypothermia set in from piece of wreckage to piece of wreckage 
continuing to urge anyone who would listen, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Four years after the sinking of the Titanic, there was a reunion of survivors. It was actually in Canada. There was a group of Titanic survivors who came together and they were talking about that experience. And there was a man there who said that he had been clinging to some of that wreckage when John Harper had come up to him, swimming up to him in the water, and had pleaded with him to be right with Christ. At first, the man was resistant, but Harper continued to plead, and the Spirit took the gospel and pierced that man's calloused heart, and he came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And then he saw John Harper swim off into the darkness, never to be seen again. And at that reunion, that man said to the rest of the survivors who were gathered there, I am the last convert of John Harper. The sinking of the Titanic from a human perspective, a total disaster, but from John Harper's perspective was his day of entry into heavenly rest and glory. And before he went, he made it a point to proclaim the gospel to anyone he could Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That illustrates how we ought to exhibit gospel courage in this society, which is going down. But let's take as many souls with us to heaven as God will sovereignly allow. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and for the courage that is illustrated by the apostles here in Acts chapter 5. We are so grateful for their boldness, the boldness to speak when it was not popular to speak, to stand when it was intimidating to stand, and to suffer when it was painful to suffer, but to suffer for your sake, which is a joy and a privilege. We too have a God-given mandate, a great commission. We too have a Christ-centered message, the gospel, the good news of salvation through him. We too have a spirit-empowered mission. Lord, by your grace and for your glory, help us to be faithful. And we look forward to the day where, like John Harper, we will enter your presence. May we hear you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for letting us be part of your church. And we pray this in your name. Amen.